Welcome to episode 131. Today, we talked to Cliff Mayotte and Aaron Vong about oral history projects for students in the secondary school. Welcome to the Teaching Multilingual Learners podcast. This podcast celebrates teachers who answer the calling to serve multilingual students and their families. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Let me list a few approaches in education, social emotional learning, culturally relevant and sustaining pedagogy, assets-based instruction, and service learning. What if we took the core principles of these separate concepts and fused them together? I think we would get oral history projects. In this conversation, we will hear why they are so important, see examples, and learn about the process of facilitating one. Now, on to today's podcast. I have the pleasure and the honor of introducing you to Cliff Mayotte and Aaron Vong. And so they are coming from Voice of Wonder. And I'm so excited about, sorry, Voice of Witness. And I'm so excited about this particular conversation because it's um, oral history projects are something that I've always heard about. I've always been inspired to try out. But now that there is an organization that is devoted to uh, bringing oral history into classes, I saw it on Twitter and I was like, yes, this is a wonderful opportunity to bring them to the podcast. So welcome Cliff and Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to great to be with you and, and to talk about education and oral history. Yeah, we're so excited to be here. Uh, would you please both talk about um, Voice of Witness and uh, your role in Voice of Witness? Yeah, perhaps I can say a few things about Voice of Witness and then Aaron and I can talk about our respective roles. Um, Voice of Witness is a nonprofit organization based in San Francisco, California. Um, otherwise known as Alone Land. And um, we are a nonprofit that amplifies the voices of people who uh, have been directly impacted by and are fighting against injustice. And we do that through two main programs that we have, our oral history book series, um, which at this point we are up to, I think it's 22 books. Um, and these are oral history uh, collections that focus on everything from uh, migration, displacement, uh, the US criminal justice system, uh, and, and more. And I just wanted to highlight, just to give you an example of our books, um, our two latest books. This one is called Mi Maria, uh, Surviving the Storm, Voices from Puerto Rico. Uh, this came out this last year. And also uh, Unheard Voices of the Pandemic. Um, which we're all currently experiencing right now. And it was really an opportunity for us at Voice of Witness to reach out to narrators from previous books and to talk to them about how the pandemic and how COVID is impacting them right now. 
So uh, these are just two examples of our most recent books. So that's kind of an example of our book series. And also our, our education program, we're, we're really focused on sharing our approach to oral history, which we describe as ethic, ethics-based and empathy-driven um, with classrooms and communities all over the world. Um, virtually and in person. And we create um, curriculum, free downloadable curriculum for all the books in our series, which I, I just mentioned. And we have a host of free downloadable oral history resources uh, for teachers uh, that, that can be downloaded. And Aaron can say a little more about it, but we also have a, a lot of resources related to um, using oral history and supporting uh, language learners and multilingual learners. So that's just a brief intro to, to Voice of Witness, but I'll, I'll let Aaron take over from here. Yeah, and I think Cliff forgot to mention, he is our education program director and he oh, yeah. really founded our education program. So we're so grateful to have Cliff. And I'm the education specialist. So I spend most of my days working directly with teachers and students and community advocates and researchers and anyone who's interested in learning about our oral history process. And it's not just necessarily about learning how to create a project, but it's also how our methodology informs their own work. Even if that's an entirely different field, we found that oral history can really be used in any way, like as a doctor in the way you talk to your patients and you listen to your patients, you can bring that oral history practice into that room with them. So our education program is just focused on expanding beyond what we love, which is the literary aspect of oral history, but it's giving people the opportunity to do what they want and just focus on that experience of talking to someone. And then what comes after that is really up to you. It seems like uh, Voice of Witness is like a one-stop shop for teachers who want to do the literacy part, but also like, hey, how do I incorporate this into the curriculum? Oh, wait, we already have lessons for you. We already have all the resources. We already have the documents. So here you go, because teachers, when they hear about ideas like this, they're like, oh my goodness, I want to do it. And then they're like, wait, how do I do it? And so you've really provided the steps to hand to guide us through that process. What was the start of this organization? Um, well, first of all, Aaron, thank you for reminding me of, to, you know, of my job description and <laughs> actually what I do at Voice of Witness. Um, but uh, Voice of Witness has been a nonprofit for a, about 12 years now. And it started as a book series, which uh, was originally published by McSweeney's Books in San Francisco. Um, beginning in 2004. And our co-founder Mimi Locke uh, was instrumental in creating the nonprofit uh, Voice of Witness that now exists. And so this was in, in 2008. And I joined the organization in 2010. And we've been building and building and building and creating and collaborating ever since then. And so, as you mentioned, we, we have a real... Um, we like to think of ourselves as the go-to for, for oral history and oral history in classrooms and communities, and also really thinking about oral history and social justice and really what it means to amplify stories that might not otherwise be heard and what that means and how you approach that with sensitivity and humility and respect and how we nurture that in the classroom. Um, so that's, that's kind of a, a the very, very brief history of the organization Voice of Witness. Can you each please share a story about um working with students or teachers um, related to oral history that has really shaped your practice today? 
I'll jump in. Um, so I've worked with English language learners and multilingual learners pretty much my entire career. And I'm a multilingual learner myself. And so a big thing I found over my years of teaching was that we really view language learners as having a deficit rather than an asset. And we really focus on the lack of English rather than the fact that they communicate in multiple languages and they bring all of that to the table. And so oral history has been this beautiful way of really highlighting all of those skills. And one defining project we've had um, at Voice of Witness is an oral history cookbook project that we did with a middle school here in San Francisco. The classes were all English language development classes. So these are students that come in with one, two, three other languages that they speak at home. And we had them interview someone in their lives about a recipe that's really important to them. And we talked about you know, what food and culture and cooking means to them and means to other people. And I think the shining moment wasn't actually from the students who were all amazing, of course, but the shining moment was actually from a parent, a mom who was interviewed by her child for this project. And she came to us and she was speaking in Spanish, but she was saying that she had never felt so involved in her child's education before because you know we live in San Francisco, English is the dominant language here. She didn't have that much access. But this time we had her child go interview her in Spanish and bring that into the classroom and we translated it to English and we had this whole thing, but it meant she could really be part of the, her learning and she could share her own experience as part of that learning. And so she was an expert and given that opportunity. And so I think that's, that's just a moment I always hold on to of why we do oral history and what it means to us. Yeah, I just have a, a, a quick a quick story that connects to that. One of the projects that that we've been uh, kind of ongoing for us at Voice of Witnesses, we're doing a lot of intergenerational storytelling and intergenerational oral history, um, and we've been working with uh, an organization in San Francisco called Sequoia Living, which runs a series of uh, public assistance uh, housing uh, for seniors in San Francisco and connecting. Uh, the, the residents uh, at Sequoia Living with students in local middle and high schools. And I think I just wanted to highlight one of the things that Aaron was mentioning around, you know, uh, the opportunities for, for students and residents to communicate stories of family and culture and community and language. And certainly with the intergenerational piece, um, there's this feeling that they both have a lot to teach each other. And they feel that because there's a lot of family connections. And it, it doesn't mean that that, that grandparents and aunties and uncles always have a, an easy time talking to each other, um, but it's a real skill to develop. And sometimes when you're talking to an elder that you're maybe you're meeting for the first time, I think that paves a way for a lot of storytelling um, in, in families and communities that, that is really necessary and, and you know, crosses a lot of cultural and, and, and language uh, boundaries and places. And we're hearing lots of stories and intergenerational stories in, in several different languages around San Francisco, um, which is Aaron, you know, mentioned is an incredibly diverse cultural, uh, cultural place, uh, you know, in this in the United States. After doing about 100 podcasts, that's like the single red thread that goes throughout all the podcasts, all the experts that have been on talking about different things in the field. They've always talked about moving from the deficit mindset to an assets-based mindset and talking about what you both have talked about, giving that example of parents being part of the school, regardless of their language. And actually their language and their cultures are assets in which can enrich the child's learning experience. And so it's no, it, if we believe that it takes a village to raise a child, then that village shouldn't just be school, 
and home. It should be together in a partnership. And really, I think oral history projects or oral history units are one of the is one of the best tools to uh, make that happen. So would you share, you already shared an example, would you share another example of, of oral history projects? Yeah, I'll jump in here. Um, it's actually, I think I'll share the one that we talked about in our Edutopia article, which was how you found us, but I'll expand on it a bit more, um, especially because it's so accessible for multilingual learners. But in that article, we briefly talked about the artifact interview. And it's when we ask students to bring in an object that is meaningful to them to the classroom. And if they don't have it, they can always bring a picture or draw something, but we really ask them to pick a physical object because especially for language learners, it grounds the interview in a way that like, tell me about your life story is really unwieldy for even a native speaker to address. So the artifact interview is just a great entry point into the process of oral history interviewing. And so um, in this project, you can take it a lot of different ways, but the sort of classic way that we've done it is having those students bring in the object. Of course, we scaffold before with you know, community guidelines for figuring out how to talk to each other, how to be comfortable sharing stories together. And then students pair off and you can either have them write questions ahead of time, you can have them journal first about their object to give their partner some ideas, or you can always give them a list of questions that they can use as jumping off points. And then they really just have conversations with each other about this object. And what happens naturally is that they talk about the object, but then they talk about where did it come from? Who gave it to me? What is my relationship with them? Why did I bring it today? What do I hope is going to happen to it in the future? Who's going to take it later? And it just spirals into this beautiful, you know, snapshot of their life, even though it's just one specific object. And so from there, after they do these interviews, uh, we usually ask students to jot down some quotes that they heard from the interview. So they might be writing as, as their partner's talking, but you know, we make it clear that they're listening, they're just trying to capture it. Or they might you know, just ask, oh, can you repeat that? I actually wanna write that down. And then we have the students actually write up sort of like a little museum display card of what that object is, what they learned from their partner about it, why did that person bring it in? And then we do a gallery walk. So we actually just display the objects and then the students can see what everyone brought in and then read a little more about it, including ideally some quotes from that student about why they chose that object today. Cliff, before you go to uh, sharing your example, I just love this example because there's reading, writing, speaking, and listening all integrated together. It's not just saying like, we're not just, okay, kids, we're gonna have a separate vocab lesson and then we'll do a separate reading lesson and then we'll do a separate writing lesson. It's all really integrated together. I guess in the field, we call that swirling where students are speaking, writing, interacting, reading and listening to each other. And so, it, and it's all authentic. Like we're not doing a reading work, we're not doing a, a, a reading worksheet. We're actually reading our writing that, that's gonna be on that museum uh, that write-up, right? And we're revising because it's not just because we have to, because we want to make sure we present that in the best way. So it's really, you're giving us a structure uh, that integrates all language domains that develop students' literacy, but is also culturally and uh, sustaining and relevant to students.
Yeah, and I just wanted to, to add on to what Aaron was saying and what, and what you were saying as well is, is that I think the cultural relevance piece is really important and goes kind of goes across all of, of the projects that we want to support in, in that, you know, whether it's the, the um, artifact interview that Aaron was describing and how that, how that can morph into all kinds of different, different kinds of projects and different ideas, but, but it's kind of reinforcing the, um, the, the idea that um, a student's lived experience and who they are and their culture and their background and their language becomes a central part of the curriculum. So, so they, they are seen and heard. And, and, you know, we were talking about the asset-based approach to learning. And I think oral history really, really supports that through the, the activity and the project that Aaron was describing. Um, and I, I think that that's really, really crucial. Um, and I, the other thing I wanted to add without necessarily like going into, you know, fully another project is that I think, you know, oral history and the artifact interview and the things that we were describing kind of ask students to talk about and describe regardless of, of their background and where they are is like, what's important to you? <laughs> and to honor that and to see that and to incorporate storytelling as a part of that process. And the only other thing I wanted to add to that is that uh, recently through several projects, we've been able to collaborate with organizations and incorporate photography into the oral history process as well and, and, look, at, and look at visual art and visual literacy and, and kind of communicating that way as well and how both you know, oral communication and vis visual communication and visual literacy can talk to each other. And it's not necessarily dependent on, you know, a, a, a quote unquote academic fluency, you know, um, it, it's really develops that in ways that are, I think, personal to, to each student and each, each project. So I can see it as multimodal. So I can see this project as, I'm, I'm just, my, my mind is like, growing with all these ideas of, of what to do. For example, with that museum display, students can then also uh, take that display and then turn it into a podcast where they can read the podcast, but now they there's a link in the, in the podcast to the video album, so the photo album, where there's all these uh, photos of the artifacts are there. And so it's just really integrated in multimodal and multimedia. Uh, there's a dimension of multimedia inside of it. So it's teaching kids to be uh, literate in different ways. And it's not just the typical academic literacy that we think about. Uh, can you, Cliff, is there an example that you want to share or you don't have to? Uh, no, I think, I, I think we, we've kind of, kind of covered that. Um, but I think, you know, I, I did want to mention something about, you know, this idea around academic literacy and, and kind of how the work that, that you do and the work that we're doing at Voice of Witness, I think is a real, uh, I think a counter to that and an alternative to that in that I think for us, I think literacy is the communication of, of, of thoughts and ideas, regardless of how that's expressed and where it comes from and, and, and what, what medium and, and how, it, how it takes place, um, as opposed to a very uh, traditional, very academic, very standard approach to literacy. Um, but, I, but I think, yeah, I could, I could talk about lots of different different projects, but I think we've covered uh, a, a couple of examples already. So I think I'm good. Got it. Thank you. So let's talk about describing the process of designing an oral history uh, unit. Yeah. So I think teachers really like to start with the fun part of it, which is the final product, but we really have to start several steps behind. And 
I do sort of a back and forth between starting steps and end product because thinking about the end product is really exciting and gets you engaged. But the very beginning is really focused on what we talk about as community guidelines and making students feel safe and brave enough to share their own stories and to be ready to listen to other people's stories. You know, we don't usually think about preparing someone to listen, but we do actually have to scaffold those skills and help students feel ready to capture those moments and to make the most of that interview experience. So the very beginning is really focused on talking to students and figuring out what do they need to feel safe and brave and comfortable? How do they feel about the consenting process? How do they feel what, you know, students, especially when they're younger, they feel like they have so little power in their lives and so much of their lives are dictated for them. And the oral history process is meant to unravel that a bit. And we're trying to give that power back to the people who are sharing with us. And so it's really talking with students about what, what does that look like for you? What do you need from us as a class altogether? And then what can we bring out into the world as we're doing these interviews? And then from there, you can go do the fun part of thinking, what do I want my project to look like? And this is where I really encourage teachers to come up with a type of theme because it's, you know, we have the luxury of a lot of time when we're creating our books. They take several years to come together. And so we have lots of time to actually capture someone's birth to now story. And we don't really have that much time in a classroom in a semester or a quarter. So I really encourage teachers to think about a theme about what they want to in interpret through oral history. And, you know, this can be like the cookbook project, which I am completely in love with. And I always encourage teachers to do it because talking about food is amazing. But it can also be about stories of migration and just how did we all end up in this neighborhood together? You know, how did we all end up in this classroom together? Or it's about cultural traditions or childhoods and what we remember about that. And, you know, this is really the point where you can engage students and ask them, what do you want to see in an oral history project? What do you want to learn more about? And we touched on this about the youth participatory action research projects in our article and having students come up with these subjects that they want to learn more about and using that as the focus of oral history. And so after we've come up with our beautiful theme, that's when you start thinking about the medium you want your project to take place in. And as I mentioned before, you know, the beauty of us teaching our methodology is that it doesn't have to look like our books. It can look like a podcast, which is really popular right now. It can look like a photo essay, as Cliff had mentioned. It can look like the cookbook. It can look like the museum gallery walk. And it can just be students presenting to class together. It, you know, it's really, it's up to you and what you think is interesting and feasible for your students. So now that you've come up with some community guidelines, you've come up with the theme and the medium you want it to take, this is where um, all of those wonderful free resources we have will come in handy because it will walk you through the process of teaching students to create and ask good questions and what that process looks like. And we have, you know, lots of modeling activities where you can bring someone in and display for students what it's like to be an interviewer. And this is where you can exaggerate the process of like, can you tell me more about that? Oh, you mentioned this. Can you tell me more about them? And it's, those moments that they pick up on and then they'll remember when they go do their own interview. Oh yeah, I should ask another question about that. So we have all of those activities involved. And then from there, it's just a matter of getting that interview experience done, which some students will take some time to do, but then it's turning that into whatever that final medium you had decided on. And then you've done a whole project. You know, it's, it seems really unwieldy when you're just thinking about that final product, but the small steps 
are actually quite simple. It does just take a little time. Yeah, I was that was going to be the other question of talking about, hey, how do we scaffold this oral history project? But you've really given us that scaffold of like, don't just think about the final product. Think about all the steps to get there. And let's start first with the, uh, with consent and then moving to all the other steps to get there. And as you were saying it, it seems like in my head, I was thinking, I wonder if they have a book. And, you know, I know you have resources, but is the is Voice of Witness going to have a book to like a professional development book for teachers to to read and learn more about this? Well, we actually have several already. <laughs> um, we have. Um, and this is this is downloadable from our website. Um, one of them is called The Power of the Story, The Voice of Witness Teacher's Guide to Oral History. Um, we also have a wonderful uh, oral history resource guide for English language learners that Aaron put together that is free and downloadable from our website. And for older, older students and for, for um, other classrooms and communities, we have a book called Say It Forward, uh, A Guide to Social Justice Storytelling. Um, so there are several, and, and it kind of, you know, it kind of, you know, there's a gradation between, you know, grade level and, and they're all, everything in, in all these resources that I mentioned is they're fully adaptable. And we know that, that teachers and educators and students and community members that uh, we want them to, to adapt our work and make it work for them. And it, we, we really think of it as a dialogue between educators and students. And I just wanted to highlight one or two things that, that Aaron mentioned, and that's the, um, uh, mentioned before about designing an oral history project, you know, one of the things that, that Aaron mentioned was kind of, well, there's the final product and there's like where you start. And a lot of teachers like work with like a backwards design or starting with the beginning. And I think the design that Aaron was describing is, is two directional. And hopefully these two designs meet in the middle in a very elegant place. And so you feel like you're you're taking care of students and taking care of community members in the process um, and, and students own process and kind of what that final project would be. But I also wanted to highlight one other thing that Aaron mentioned, which was about, um, there's an interaction with community members. There's an interaction with the public and a community and part of this process. And what's really, I think, vital for students is what might those participants get out of that project? And what's kind of like, what's in it for them? And where where is the mutual benefit for them? And there's some really powerful teaching and learning that goes with that. And I just wanted to make sure that I was able to mention that. So this really dovetails in really well to what's the case for oral history projects? Yeah, so for us, oral history is really about communication, critical thinking, and I think above all, confidence and teaching students that confidence in themselves and in reaching out to people and learning about what it means to experience someone else's story and that empathy that builds from it. And so we think about teaching skills by empowering students to become interviewers and be their own narrators and take control of their own stories and help others take control of their own stories as well. And, you know, we, I can make the case in terms of academic skills of literacy, reading, writing, speaking, all that happens in the oral history process, but it happens in this beautifully organic way that doesn't feel forced for students. And I actually had a kid a couple years ago, as we were going through the project, he was like, wait, are we learning English now? And I was like, yes, <laughs> we've been doing that this whole time. And he was so confused because he wasn't just getting a worksheet over and over. And we were like, no, it's happening. It's happening right now. And so it's, you know, especially for multilingual learners, oral history just promotes that level of communication that I don't think they see when they're just looking at 
grammar and rules and practicing sentence structure over and over, because that's not really the point of what we want out in the real world. We want them to be able to talk to people as it comes to them. And the more they talk to people, the better they're going to get over time. Oh, Erin, you sound like an experienced educator. <laughs> and yes, that's, that, that's the purpose of, I think as we are decolonizing as language specialists, we are decolonizing English instruction to not just saying English only, to now saying multilingualism. And now this brings in SEL. Now this also brings in culturally, culturally responsive instruction. This brings in culturally sustaining instruction where it's saying like, uh, what Cliff said before, students' lived experiences. Students' lived experiences are valuable. And when we start with what they know, it becomes immediately relevant to them. So it, I feel like oral history projects just pull in all these, these uh, frames and concepts, even uh, project-based learning or service learning, and they all tie it all together in something that's meaningful. Because kids will say, oh, wow, am I learning English? You are. You are developing your literacy. But you're also using your uh, first language to communicate to your mom and dad or to sustain that language as you're interviewing them. Right? And so it's not just learning English at the expense of their first language. It's learning English, sustaining their language, sustaining their cultural connections, and saying that, oh, I am valuable. Uh, just like everyone else. It seems like you have lots of experience working with teachers and students, and so you've seen things that um, make it successful and things that make it not successful. Would you talk about those things? Yeah, I. Uh, this is also a running joke among staff, but I'm the type of person that pokes holes into plans all the time, and I'm always like, is that going to work? Are we really going to do it? But I find that that actually helps projects become more successful because we've really thought through what are the pitfalls and challenges. And so I love this question. And I think the big thing for me and teachers who are especially just embarking on their first project is let's not aim for perfection and let's rethink how we define perfection because the goal of the oral history project actually is not that final product. It is a beautiful thing at the end that we love to share, but the goal is the interview experience. We just want students to sit down with someone and talk to them and learn from them and develop that empathic connection with someone and then take that back with them. And it doesn't really matter what that looks like in the end. I, you know, I can't really say that because I do care a lot about how these projects end up and I want something shiny to show off. But really the point is that interview experience. It's not the cookbook at the end. It's not the podcast at the end. It is the fact that we asked a student to go out and find someone and listen to them and they did it. And they asked them these beautiful questions and they practiced their language learning and they digested all that information. And now they have it. No matter what we do with that information at the end, they have it within them. So I think that the, my biggest advice for teachers is really don't aim for the final project perfection aim for the core skill of interviewing and getting your student to that experience. Because once you've done that, I always say everything else is just the sprinkles on top. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's all about the process. Absolutely all about the process because 
um, all of the assessments, all of the evaluations, all of the things that we hear back and experience um, at Voice of Witness through the education program and working with teachers and students is, yeah, they love the cookbook and they love you know, the, the final product, but across the board, everyone communicates how amazing the experience was interviewing that grandparent, thinking about, you know, my relationship to my community, thinking about my relationship to my school and how I, how I articulate that and what that means to me. It's like, that is incredibly, incredibly valuable. And, and I think too, um, and teachers are wonderfully ambitious and sometimes the other little bit of advice I would give is that sometimes in their thinking about oral history projects for the first time, they just, it, it's, it becomes, it's way too ambitious and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and we're going to like 13 other things. And it's just really hard to get to. And it's, it's okay to just be modest and to start small and to think about process before, before product. That's the central theme of learning, right? It's always thinking about process before product because the product will be forgotten and placed away, but the process will always stay with you. So that's a great way to end the podcast to talk about through this process, what do you each want uh, teachers to, to get, take away from oral history uh, projects? You know, I think we've talked a lot about what the oral history process does for students. And I also wanna say that, especially for us at Voice of Witness, a big part of our work is working directly with teachers. And, you know, I'm always answering those emails. We're on social media, pushing out resources. And I want teachers to know that they're not alone trying to do these projects in the classroom. There are people like us, there are other organizations doing this work. There are people that want to support you. And so please reach out, please use our resources and break them apart and edit them however you want to make it fit your classroom and ask us for more and ask us for the support and know that Oral history is about community. It's about building community. And it's not just about building community for your students doing the project. It's about building community for you as an educator and getting to know each other through that oral history process and sharing your own experiences as well. Yeah, and just, just to add to that, I think, I think oral history, I think really honors um, teachers' best impulses um, in terms of why they do what they do and how they do it and how they approach it. And we're really, really committed in supporting teachers in that and acknowledging that. Um, and also this, that this process, um, we want to acknowledge and encourage teachers that they are doing this work with their students and not just for them. And so they're, they're active participants and, and, and modeling and, and, and doing all the things that, that we've been talking about over, over this, you know, the past, over this conversation. But I think really it's, it's seeing teachers and, and honoring their, their impulses, um, you know, for teaching and learning. Oh, Cliff, I can see the program director inside of you, especially when you went and you said that the process should be two-way process, not just a one-way. Because you talked about understanding by design or designing backwards planning. You really, you really talked like a program, like a person who, who's an experienced educator and thinks about the holistic aspect of it. I want to ask you another question. I was just thinking about what brought both of you to a voice of witness? Well, I had been a full-time classroom teacher um, for about 15 years and I had been doing, uh, my background is in literature and performing arts. And I had been doing a lot of performing arts, uh, incorporating oral history and uh, incorporating both around social justice themes. 
Um, and I had gotten to a point where I'd been, you know, I had enough of the classroom, like full time, and I, I wanted to transition out and, and to do something else. And so I was thinking about social justice and oral history and literature and storytelling and performance. And all of those things led me to Voice of Witness. Um, it was a wonderful place for me to land after having been in the classroom for so long. So it felt like a, a very organic, um, wonderful journey that led me to Voice of Witness. Um, so I, as I mentioned before, I am a multilingual learner myself. I come from a refugee family and so much of our story is not written down or is not even in objects because my family had to leave so much behind. And so oral history has always been a part of my life. And I don't think I've recognized it as such until I went abroad and I taught in a classroom for a few years in Spain. I taught English language to them. And I actually did use oral history without knowing what I was doing. I sort of look back and think, I wish I had Voice of Witness back then. And I did a version of an oral history project with them where I did encourage them to use their native language, which wasn't Spanish in that region, it was actually Galician. And I encouraged them to use that because I wanted to cultivate that acknowledgement of their other language on top of learning English with me. And then when I came back to the US, when I came back home to San Francisco, I really wanted to stay connected to my favorite parts of teaching. And I just sort of fell into Voice of Witness and the oral history process here and realized this is what I've always wanted to do. And now I've been here for five, six years and absolutely loving every moment that I get to be in the classroom with teachers and to develop these ideas and really expand the way we look at oral history. Well, I'm grateful that your individual past have, have brought you to Voice of Witness so that you can be uh, working in an organization that produces all these resources for teachers. And every time uh, someone creates an oral history project with your resources, you are there in the classes with them. So your work is still teaching. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us here. Thank you. It was a it was an absolute pleasure. Before we recap this episode, I have a favor and an invitation. My favor is to ask you to please review this podcast if you found it valuable so that teachers like you become inspired and informed in their advocacy work. My invitation is for you to enroll in my scaffolding learning or teacher collaboration courses. I've taken the principles that I've learned from experts in the field. I've applied them to my classes. I kept the things that worked and I'm sharing all of them in these courses. I hope you consider enrolling. Now onto our recap. The thing I love most about this conversation is to remember that it's not about the final product. It's about the process of teaching students to listen empathetically to others and to see the value in the lived experiences that others bring. Please make sure to check out all their free resources on the website to start your own oral history project. You could find their downloadable book called The Power of the Story on the website. Again, this is best for ninth to 12th graders. Of course, you can make it adaptable to middle and also upper elementary school students. In the next episode, we'll visit with Dr. Mandy Stewart and Holly Genova 
about reading writing workshop for sixth to 12th graders. Thank you for listening. I'll see you soon. Be safe and be rooted in peace. It's your turn to play Traffic Light Teaching. Tweet at me either your red, yellow, or green light from this particular episode. Your beautiful smile, your beautiful life are waiting for you to shine bright. It's never too early or late to start to rise up and shine. Never do.